So the Jewish community in a few days is going to start this celebration of Hanukkah, and then we're going to start Christmas uh, about a week after that. Speaking of Christmas, look, the wise men, they're on their way. They'll get over there by Christmas Eve, probably. So, what's Hanukkah about? I was thinking about telling you the story, but then I thought, you know what? I'll get a little help from the audiovisual department. So if I can get Joe to kill the lights, I've got a presentation for you on Hanukkah. Let's take a look. Shalom and welcome to Parsha in 60 Seconds. Today's portion is a bonus round, Hanukkah. Hanukkah means Festival of Lights and was established after the Maccabees defeated Antiochus Epiphanes and rededicated the temple to God. For eight days, Jews worldwide celebrate by lighting the eight-branch menorah by the Shamas candle. Traditional dishes include latkes and sufganyot. A game of dreidel is played today as a reminder that during the time of the hero Judah Maccabee, studying Torah was forbidden and they would pretend to gamble when the Greeks would pass by. Many epic battles were fought by Judah Maccabee, also known as the Hammer. He took on huge armies, war elephants, and saved the Jewish people. It is said that the miracle of Hanukkah is that one night's worth of oil lasted eight nights, but the real miracle was that the Jewish people survived several battles against unbelievable odds. Many historians argue that the first Hanukkah was eight days because it was a belated celebration of Sukkot. What many people today don't realize is that if there was no Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. Boom! And that is Hanukkah in 60 seconds. And there you have it. <laughs> Boom! You know, the, uh, the uh, battles that they fought, for example, imagine if the, if the Jewish people had an army of 10,000 people, the, the Greco-Syrians, they would have had seven times that number. So you could do the math. There was no way they could have won, but they did time and time again. Hanukkah is only mentioned by name one time in the Bible. And most people are surprised to find this out, but it's actually mentioned by name in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. There's still a lot of people who don't realize that uh, the, the, the New Testament is a Jewish book. At least Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by Jewish people in the land of Israel and um, about Jewish things. So John chapter 10, verses 22 through 24, it says this. Now Hanukkah was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the open porch of Solomon. So the Judeans surrounded him and quizzed him, how long are you going to keep us in, in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, it, there you have it. We want to know. Are you the Messiah or are you not? Before I tell you how this all went down after that, Hanukkah is prophetically tied to the coming of the Messiah. There's Jewish tradition that bring the two things together. I think that tradition is based originally on Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, there's this huge prophetic section about Daniel's future all the way up to the end of days. And as you follow it, you see Daniel talked about the coming of the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, then Antiochus, then the Romans, and then he talks about a final world empire with the Antichrist. But in talking about Antiochus, he talks about some of the events before they happened. And so the rabbis over the years started thinking, you know, Hanukkah somehow ties together to the coming of the Messiah because in the prophecies in the scripture, it's all together. 
One rabbi wrote this about the two coming together. He wrote, in the merit of Hanukkah lights and the application of their lesson, we shall speedily experience the messianic redemption, of which it is said, he has set an end to the darkness, Job 28. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of God is shining forth over you. So since Hanukkah is called the festival of lights, this rabbi and some others took the concept of the lights, found passages in the scripture that talk about the shining of light, and they brought the two together. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. So here's Jesus. He's standing in the temple where he taught all the time. And some of the leadership comes up to him. Just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or are you not? Why were they asking? You think they really wanted to know, oh, if you're the Messiah, we're going to follow you. No, they were looking for an excuse to blame him for something. They were looking for a religious ex excuse to, to accuse him of blasphemy. They were looking for a political excuse to condemn him as a false king. It's not like these were honest seekers and Jesus was keeping them in the dark. No, no, you've got to read between the lines. So, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And then he says this. I have told you, but you don't believe it. The actions I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. The actions I do. You know, if you're not going to listen to my words, look at what I'm doing. Don't actions speak louder than words? Yes. Isn't that a saying we have? We always say also, hey man, just don't walk, talk the talk, walk the walk. It's very popular for people to put actions over words. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, he said, he wrote a letter, all the friars, you should preach by your deeds. And today people will say, um, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Well, you have to use words, but the idea is actions speak louder than words. And we shouldn't just talk the talk. We should walk the walk. John Locke said, I've always thought the actions of men the best interpreters of their thoughts. And one of my heroes, Ben Franklin, said, well done is much better than well said. So Jesus is saying, I told you, you don't believe me. Look at what I'm doing. What I do speaks to your answer. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand what he said, and they didn't apply what he was doing. So verse 26, he says this. He says, but you don't believe, because you don't belong to my sheep. I find it interesting that he plainly taught that he was the Messiah, and yet people didn't plainly understand him. Some people did. It's just like today, some people are convinced he's the Messiah, and some people aren't. There's all these different religion, religious groups that use the same Bible. And yet they all claim to have the truth. And yet their truths, some of them, are so different than ours. I mean, I'm not talking about different denominations. For the most part, all the Christian denominations teach the same truths, the basic truths. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins. Turn from your sins, believe in him, and you'll be saved and spend eternity in heaven. We all believe that. Some of the details about other things we disagree over. But there are some religions that have totally different views than ours, and yet they claim to use the same book. 
How is that possible? Some people use that as an excuse. They'll say, I'm not going to read the Bible. It's confusing. Look at all the religions. If it it was easy to understand, we'd all believe the same thing. It's got nothing to do with this book. It's got to do with the people who read the book. There's a bunch of different groups and cults and religions out there, not because this is confusing, but because they are confused. There's a big difference. Jesus taught plainly. Some people followed him, some people didn't. Same words they heard, same deeds they saw, yet some followed him and some didn't. And nothing has changed. Speaking about using the same words and not having a clue about what somebody's saying, how many of you have ever talked to the opposite sex before? And you're like, why don't you understand what I'm saying? They, they wrote a whole book about it. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We use the same words. We speak the same language. It's like, what did you just say? I, sometimes I'll say, I need a translation. I need an interpretation. I've got, and it's not just males, females. I've got a, uh, some friends in other countries. I've got a friend in England. What do they speak in England? English. What do we speak in America? English. Why can't I understand him? One day he tells me, you know, he was driving along and, and you know, th- he had a press on the anchors and this woman almost ran into his boot. It's like, what? I know every word you just said. But I have no idea what you just said. You speak English, I speak English. I need an interpreter. So I had to think about it. Press on the anchors. Well, if you're driving, it, what else can you press on but the brakes? Oh, anchors, I get it. Brakes, that makes sense. The boot? How does she run into your boot? Are you a cowboy? You got boots in the... And then I saw something, I guess British people call the back end of their car the boot. The trunk is the boot. And, and they have words, their words are different than ours for all sorts of things. You, you know what um, pants are to British people? They're underwear. So you don't want to ask somebody if you could see their pants. Or you don't want to tell them you don't like their pants or that you do like, oh, what a nice pair of pants you have on, Laura. That wouldn't go over so well in England. (laughs) You can get beat up for that. So you speak the same language, but you don't understand what they're saying. Now, throw in a spiritual element to this, where Jesus was speaking about heavenly truths, and these people had no clue what he was saying. He said, you don't believe because you don't belong to my sheep. You're not part of this club. You don't speak my language. You don't speak my dialect. Guy comes up to me the other day and he says, do you know anybody who who knows Aramaic? Because I got a friend who wants to put a tattoo on his arm in Aramaic and he wants to get this Aramaic saying just right. I said, Aramaic? I said, do you even know what Aramaic is? He said, Aramaic is like It's a dialect of Hebrew. Hebrew and Aramaic are almost the same language. It's kind of like British English versus American English. Mm, Very similar. So I said, a lot of people speak Hebrew today, but people don't speak Aramaic today. So I said, my answer is no. I don't know anybody who speaks Aramaic. You can find somebody online maybe, but why don't you just have them put it in Hebrew? So what language did Jesus speak? Well, he spoke Hebrew. And Aramaic, probably Greek, because everybody spoke Greek. That was the lingua franca of the day. It was the English of their day. You know, you go to another country, chances are you will find people who speak English, 
because it's the most popular language on the planet today. So back then it was Greek. And the Roman government, that was all handled in Latin. I don't know if Jesus spoke Latin or not, but I'm almost certain he spoke Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And yet, the other Hebrew speakers didn't know what he was saying. Verse 26, you don't believe because you don't belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never be lost. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The only place in the Bible where Hanukkah is mentioned by name, Jesus is in the temple speaking about eternal life. This is important because Hanukkah is about salvation. It's about two kinds of salvation. We always talk about the miraculous victory of the Jewish people over the Syrians who try to wipe them out spiritually and who try to wipe them out physically. They defiled the temple. Basically, they outlawed Judaism. They said, anybody caught worshiping the God of Israel put it in your language today, anybody caught worshiping Jesus will be executed. Um, just to help you understand it in today's culture, anybody caught with any Christmas ornaments at their house will be executed. Anybody taught teaching their children about Jesus will be executed. Anybody caught with a fish on their bumper will be executed. Anybody caught with crosses and their jewelry at home will be executed. You're starting to understand what the Jewish people were up against? Judaism was outlawed. Anybody caught circumcising their children will be executed. And they were carrying this out. These weren't idle threats. So the Jewish people said, this is the end of us unless we fight back. But we can't win. We're outnumbered. It'd be like, I don't know, just think of some little nation you'd never respected for their military might coming to war against the United States. We send our Marines and all our technology, and they send a bunch of guys with sticks and stones and swords. Like, there's just no way, and that's what they said. And they said, but if we turn from our sins, we have the covenant. God said he will never let anybody defeat us if we're walking with him. So let's repent of our sins and then turn it over to God which is what they did, and that's how they had the victory. They were going to be wiped out spiritually. They were going to be wiped out physically only if they didn't give in to the spiritual side of it. So they were saved. The temple where atonement for sins was made, that was defiled. So when I tell you Hanukkah is about salvation, it's about spiritual salvation, it's about physical salvation, it's about the salvation of a people, that's the whole theme of salvation, and it's pictured by the Festival of Lights. God saved Israel from a brutal dictator, and he saved Israel from spiritual annihilation. So similarly, on Hanukkah, Yeshua promised that those who follow him will have eternal life and be safe in his hands forever. Read it to you again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never be lost. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's kind of like he was saying, on Hanukkah, your life was spared, but let me give you fuller life. Let me give you eternal life, the life that only Messiah can give. Verse 29, Yeshua continues speaking. What my Father has given me 
is more important than anything, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. Now, this translation I'm reading is different than maybe the ones in front of you. My Father is given to me is greater than all, some translations say, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. But listen to this translation. This version says, What my Father has given me is more important than anything. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about his followers. So here's Jesus saying, what God, the people God has given me are more important to me than anything. Does it give you goosebumps that the Son of God says that about you, that you are more important than anything? Angels? No, you're much more important than angels. The universe, you're more important than the universe. When God says you're important, he means, if necessary, I'll become a human myself, and I'll come to earth. I will die for their sins if that's what it takes to save them. I will do anything for them. That's what he did. Because you're that important to him. Verse 29, what my Father has given me is more important than anything. And no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Judeans picked up stones to stone him to death. And Jesus replied to them, I've shown you many good actions from my Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Judeans answered him, We're not going to stone you for a good action, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, are making yourself God. I find this story funny. And there's absolutely nothing funny about it. I have a sick sense of humor. Here's what I find funny. They're about ready to stone Jesus. What are you going to do if somebody picks up stones? An angry mob picks up stones and they're about ready to kill you. What do you do? Run! That's what anybody would do. What's Jesus do? He asks them questions. Let's have a conversation. So, why are you going to stone me? Is he scared? Not in the least. He's in the middle of downtown Ferguson. And he's white. And he's got no gun. And the mob's coming. And he just says, can we, have, can we talk? <laughs> not a smart thing to do for the average person. He's not the average person. And it's funny to me that he says, not just can we talk. It's what he says. It's humorous. He says, I've done so many good things. Which one of them are you stoning, for, stoning me for? It's like, kind of like it's a joke and an insult all at the same time. So why are you going to kill me? Was it because I healed all the, all the blind people? Or was it the curing of the leper? Did you hate that? Feeding the 5,000. Oh, that was evil. Oh, it was the walking on water. You hated that. Was it the nice woman that, that I gave food to? Which one of these marvelous mitzvot, these good deeds that I do, that you're hating me for and you want to murder me for? Boy, he got up in their face. He was really trying to show them what they were. I'm a good guy and you want to kill me. What's that say about you? But he said it in a Jewish way, kind of subtly, which is pretty cool, by asking a question. So which one of these good deeds are you killing me for? And they said, we're not killing you for a good deed. We're killing you for blasphemy. Because you're just a mere man and you're making yourself out to be God. So, 
Jesus tries the good deed approach. That didn't work. So now he's going to try the words approach, which seems to be the one that they honor. Verse 34. Jesus replied to them, Is it not written in your Torah, I said you are gods? If he called those to whom the message from God came, gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, how can you say to the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Okay, let me tell you what's going on here. These are Torah scholars. Jesus says, so for which of the good deeds are you stoning me? Good deeds in the Hebrew culture is one of the most important things there is, period. They're called mitzvot. And you try to spend your life doing mitzvot, good deeds. So the fact that he challenged them for hating him for doing them was pointed. Now he goes to the Torah, to the Jewish scriptures. And he says, you're going to stone me for blasphemy because I said this, I'm the son of God? Doesn't it say in the Torah that God called people Elohim? And if God can call people Elohim, how can you stone me for saying I'm the son of God? He said, what I said is kosher. It's based on Torah. So you're wrong for trying to stone me for a good deed, and you're wrong for trying to stone me for saying something God said. He, win he wins. Every which way he wins. By the way, the portion of the scripture he's talking about is actually in the Psalms. Psalm 82, verse 6 says this, and I quote, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. This is God talking to human beings, calling them gods. Now, is God really saying we're gods? Of course not. But he does use the word to make a point. And Jesus uses it to make a point too. You can't stone me for blasphemy if God did the same thing back in the Psalms. Now, in the Psalms, it says, I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Why does God say that to people in the Psalm? Well, it's complex. There's a lot of little pieces going on here. First of all, some people, some scholars will say it's a play on words because the Hebrew word Elohim is multifaceted. It can mean judges, magistrates, authorities, or powers, but it also means God or gods. Okay, that's, that's one approach. But I think there's more to it than that. Generally speaking, the word Elohim in the Bible means God or gods. It means God in the singular when it's referring to the one and true God, and it refers to gods in the plural when it's referring to false gods. God made us, so we're children of God. We're in the God family. We should be behaving like God. We should be living just like God wants us to live, holy, righteous lives. But in Psalm 82, 6, he's pointing out, but you don't live that way. You're, you're, you're living just the opposite. So it's kind of like another jab in the Psalms. Even though you're like, children of Elohim, sons of God, you're not living like it. And then the, the next verse in the psalm says, but you will die like mere men. So the point is, you've got this great inheritance, you're in the family of God, you're children of God, you're sons of God, but you're living like the devil and you're going to die like mere mortals because that's the way you are. So Jesus brings their attention back to that verse. He says, you can't get mad at me and call me a blasphemer for calling myself the son of God when God called mere humans the son of God. And I've been consecrated. I'm the Messiah. I'm special. I'm definitely the son of God. They were not happy with what he had to say. And then I had to ask myself, why was he even saying that to them? Remember at the beginning I said, why did 
They even ask him the question if he's the Messiah, tell us plainly, like they were interested. They didn't care. And he knew they didn't care. But others were listening in. So I think he was having this whole conversation with them for everybody else who was listening in. His deeds proclaimed his deity. But when they ignored his deeds, he used words. He plainly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They didn't believe, but they didn't ignore him either. They chose to reject him as a blasphemer and elected to stone him. Verse 37. If I'm not doing my father's deeds, actions, or even mitzvot, don't believe me. But if I am doing them, even though you don't believe me, believe the actions so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Hey, anybody can say they're the Messiah, the Son of God. Don't believe them. But if they walk on water and take a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people, if they resurrect the dead, cleanse the leper and cast out demons, you might want to listen. And that's what he's saying. You don't believe my words? Look at my deeds. Then, as we wrap this up, verse 41 and 42. Many people came to him, and they kept saying, John never performed a sign or a miracle. But everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in Yeshua there. That's why I said he was having this conversation for everybody else. Because of this conversation where he was almost stoned and not worried about it. By the way, have you ever had your life on the line? Thought you were going to die any minute now? Did you worry about it? Did you panic? Don't. If you walk with God, what do you have to fear? Is God in control or is he not? Really, is he in control or is he not? That's a, it's an honest question. If you honestly think he's in control, then you should never fear again. It's that simple. Because God, you know, an atom bomb can drop on your house, and if it's not your time to go, you're not going. You know, how many of you have heard stories like a guy falls off a step stool and dies, a guy falls out of an airplane and lives? Hurricane comes through and devastates an entire city but leaves one house alone. When it's your time, it's your time. And when it's not, it's not. I've heard about tornadoes picking up people and moving them from one place to another totally unharmed while cars are being thrown into trees and stuff and straws shooting through trees because of the force of the wind. God's in control. Just trust him. Let him do what he's going to do. Many people came to him and kept saying, John never performed a sign, but everything that John said about this man is true. Why is John being mentioned here? You have to understand that in the first century, John, who we now know as John the Baptist, was extremely popular. I can't overstate it. He was the Moses of his day. Not only did they love and respect him, everybody, but they believed him to be a prophet. He was a popular prophet, and I will dare say more popular than Moses. Now, Steve, how can you say that? Everybody respected Moses. Yeah, later, years later. But when Moses was here, the children of Israel tried to kill him more than once. Did you know that? We wanted to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. That's how bent we were. So Moses wasn't highly respected when he was here. But John, when he was here, everybody loved him. And they knew he was a prophet. And what did prophet John say? 
He said, Jesus is the Messiah. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. So if you think he's a prophet and you respect him, you've got to respect what he says about Jesus. Many people came to, to him saying, John never performed a sign. Why did we believe in John? He never even did a miracle. Here's Jesus walking on water, raising people from the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, and we don't believe in him? What's wrong with you people? That's what he's, they're saying to themselves. And so many did believe in him after that. Well, we're coming up to Hanukkah. We'll light the menorah next week, at least on Saturday. And we're going to light it Wednesday night at the Hanukkah party. It's the festival of lights. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He also said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to close with this, taking a little extra time. Please be patient with me. The Hanukkah menorah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's always called an eight-branch menorah. But you notice there's actually nine. This one is called the Shamish. It doesn't count. Its job is only to be the servant to light the other lights. And that's what shamash means, servant. It's the servant light. And then the eight lights represent the eight nights of Hanukkah. And this whole thing, by the way, represents the, the menorah that was in the temple. And the, the menorah was extinguished when the pagans came in and tried to outlaw Judaism. And then when we got the temple back, they relit it. But the legend is there was only enough oil to last one day. But it lasted eight days and eight nights, which was enough time to get more holy oil for the menorah. But I look at it just a little differently. Yeshua said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He also said, let your light shine that people might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, the deeds that I do, you will do, but even greater. As bright as Jesus' light was in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago, your light, because it's multiplied by millions, is brighter still. And that's how he wanted it. I'm not taking any glory from him. That was his plan, that he would multiply his light. And what does he want us to do? Good deeds. Because actions speak louder than words. Let your light shine before man, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we want our light to shine. This little light of mine, Lord, I want to let it shine. Please help us to do good deeds, to not be caught up in ourselves, to be patient and kind and loving and gentle and respectful, and to help people who need help. And help us to point people to the Messiah, who himself is the true light. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.